Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Shanana was a syndicated comedy variety show featuring the 50s-style rock and roll group of the same name. My younger brother and I weren't into two-op music per se, but we watched Shanana every night because we liked the comedy sketches and the show's nightly closing song, Good Night, Sweetheart, Good Night. Sometimes, I think my brother and I sat through the whole show just to see that one final number. It was quite touching to see the entire cast singing goodbye to us, as if that was their last show. Shana and I was on TV for four years, and it's really not surprising the show lasted as long as it did. The 70s were awash with 1950s nostalgia. George Lucas's American Graffiti was a big hit at the box office in 1973, paving the way for movies like Grease and Animal House and TV shows like Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days. The 50s nostalgia served as a kind of soothing balm for a nation just beginning to heal from the pain of the Vietnam War. The 50s became the good old days, a seemingly carefree time of innocence and peace and relative prosperity. Even though there was just as much war, poverty, and crime as there had been during any other era, it just looked a lot better in that rose-colored rearview mirror we call nostalgia. It's funny how people can be nostalgic for a time they've never known. There's an actual term for this kind of nostalgia, and it's called animoia. This surely must have been what my brother and I were feeling, but didn't know or care enough to name. Begging my mother for a leather jacket, just like the one Fonzie wore in Happy Days, was a regular thing in our household. Just like squeezing big dabs of our father's brill cream into our hair and slicking it back until it achieved that perfect wet and shiny greaser look was also a thing right after every Shanana episode. Our poor dad was spending a fortune on bro cream, but we didn't care, as long as we looked like our faux 50s heroes. Along the way, my brother and I grew fond of the real 50s heroes, like James Dean, Buddy Holly, and Elvis. Biopics about Buddy Holly and Elvis were always on TV during the 70s, and I practically watched them all. Among them, my two favorites were The Buddy Holly Story, starring Gary Busey, in 1979's Elvis, starring Kurt Russell. One particular scene in the Elvis movie stood out for me, and the way I remember it, the scene happened at the beginning of the movie. It was a scene in which Elvis aims a gun at his TV and shoots a hole right through it. This was a side of Elvis I had never seen before. He was dark and foreboding and a far cry from the Elvis and the Elvis in Hawaii movies. That Elvis walked around with a ukulele. The Kurt Russell Elvis 
walked around with a Colt 45 pistol. Watching Elvis shoot out his TV got me thinking about what else this guy was capable of. If he could shoot out his 25-inch RCA TV while Robert Goulet was singing on television one night, what else could he do? This guy was a lot crazier than I or a lot of people had ever imagined. As a spokesman for Elvis's home and museum, Graceland, in Memphis, Tennessee, once explained to the Associated Press in 2006, There was nothing Elvis had against Robert Goulet. They were friends, but Elvis just shot out things on a random basis. Was Elvis capable of smashing a guitar across someone's back? If Elvis could do it, there was definitely one man who could. The honky-tonk man. To hear Roy Wayne Farris tell it on the YouTube show Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw, the honky-tonk man, derived from Johnny Horton's song of the same name, was originally based on Dwayne Schneider, the cocky building superintendent on the TV show One Day at a Time. With his slimy black hair and pencil-thin mustache and ever-present tool belt, the wise-cracking Schneider had a kind of sleazy vibe to him. Roy Wayne Farris used as the underpinning of a great heel. Seeing Farris go from blonde-haired heel to black-haired heel inspired some Birmingham, Alabama fans to make an Elvis-type jumpsuit for Farris in the hopes he would take on the Elvis persona. Farris, who was reluctant to adopt an Elvis-like role, eventually gave in when a wise promoter named Robert Fuller saw the jumpsuit liked it, and added a guitar to the honky-tonk man repertoire. A few nights later, the honky-tonk man smashed that same guitar across an opponent's back. The fans hated him for it, and a star was born. Thing was, another wise promoter named Vince McMahon liked the honky-tonk man get up too. Having lured Farris to the WWF, McMahon told Farris he wanted the honky-tonk man to be a good guy, a face. As Farris tells it, McMahon saw kids wearing honky-tonk jumpsuits, sunglasses, and little toy guitars. As these visions of merchandising danced in McMahon's head, Farris conveyed his reluctance to his new boss. He'd always been a heel. He didn't know anything about being a face. But the push to make honky-tonk man a kind of second-tier Hulk Hogan went forward anyway. Farris did his best to win the crowds over, But everywhere he went, the fans rejected him. Even the heels wrestling Farris were worried about losing their bad guy heat to Farris. Fans were cheering for the likes of Don Morocco and Iron Mike Sharp any time they were beating on the honky-tonk man. Things couldn't go on like this. Something had to give. Eventually, the plug got pulled and the will of the fans went out. The honky-tonk man went on to talk about what a great singer and dancer he was, how he was the greatest rock star the world ever did see, and etc. Finally, the fans could hate the honky-tonk man proper. I don't know if it was the animoia I mentioned earlier or my affinity for the darker side of Elvis, but I became an instant fan of the honky-tonk man when he turned heel. It only seemed natural to me that someone pretending to be a 50s megastar with no discernible musical talent of his own, would be disliked by the crowds. It made sense to Farris, too, as he stated he never intended the honky-tonk man to be anything 
but a villain. In the hands of a lesser talent, the honky-tonk man could have failed, even as a villain. This wasn't just a matter of sounding and looking like Elvis, as any Joe Schmo can do that, but going larger than Elvis, pretending you never heard of the guy. Now that's big. And the honky-tonk man pulled it off, and then some. His promos are some of the most entertaining promos you will ever see. Some might piss you off, some might make you cringe, but all were hilarious, especially those promos when he tried to play the guitar. He would finger-pick a few unrecognizable notes, then ask if anyone knew the song. When you didn't, it was because you were tone-deaf. You can't beat that kind of comedy. It reminded me of comedian Andy Kaufman's Elvis Presley impersonation, half funny and half serious, although Kaufman could actually sing like Elvis, the way he channeled and transformed him into something completely his own, was completely surreal. That's exactly what Roy Wayne Ferris did with the Honky Tonk Man, making him identifiable and unidentifiable at the same time, all of which made for one unpredictable appeal. The honky-tonk man could beat you any number of ways. He could smash a guitar across your back, conk you with a megaphone, Colonel Jimmy Hart's megaphone to be exact, break your neck with his shake, rattle, and roll, a cleverly named variation of the all-purpose swinging neckbreaker, and use his girlfriend Peggy Sue to distract you, or have his manager, Mouth of the South, Colonel Jimmy Hart, interfere with your match. When those methods didn't work, he'd resort to more conventional bad guy tricks like using the rope for leverage while pinning an opponent or getting a 10 count outside of the ring to get disqualified and secure his championship. The honky-tonk man was a crafty wrestler. He had to be, to be the WWF's longest reigning intercontinental champion. He held the belt a record-setting 454 days, besting Puerto Rican champ Pedro Morales' record of 424 days. You don't get to hold a title that long without resorting to some chicanery. Crafty fighters aren't always the most exciting to watch. Think boxing's Bernard Hopkins, but they know a lot about longevity. They are also usually underappreciated because they're not knockout artists. Pro wrestling's equivalents of the knockout artists were wrestlers like Goldberg and the Ultimate Warrior, programmed to flatten their opponents in seconds, leaving the fans feeling cheated and underwhelmed. It was, in fact, Ultimate Warrior who ended Honky Tonk Man's reign in 1988 SummerSlam, and it took him all of 31 seconds to do so. What a jip. And what a discredit to the honky-tonk man's impressive, impressive record. A hard-won victory would have been so much more memorable. But somebody at the WWF was champing at the bit to have some gold around the warrior's waist. They were willing to sacrifice anything. Anything. Especially quality. The honky-tonk man was inducted into the WWE Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2019. 
the same year as the Ultimate Warrior, but Warrior was not in Roy Wayne Farris's league. The Honky Tonk Man was a talented wrestler who could wrestle with the best of them. His matches with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat were classics. My best friend Sal and I saw those two wrestling in Madison Square Garden in the summer of 1987, and I want to say, and here's where my memory gets wobbly, that we saw the Intercontinental Championship change hands that night as Honky Tonk Man beat Steamboat for the belt. I remember Sal rooting for Steamboat and me cheering on the Honky Tonk Man in a seesaw match that had everyone at the Garden on their feet that night. Unable to remember how the match ended, and thinking Honky Tonk Man had relied on trickery to get the win, you know, leverage on the rope during the pin or something similar, I was astounded to watch the match and see Honky Tonk Man had beaten Steamboat with a legitimate small package pin. Yes, there was plenty of ringside interference from Jimmy Hart and his megaphone, but the pin itself was indeed legitimate. Where would my memory be without YouTube? Honky Tonk Man returned to the ring and thanked the fans for his victory, doing his best Elvisy, rubbing salt in the wound when he said, This belt belongs to you. Now that's the way to get some heat. As much as I like the Honky Tonk Man, I never felt inspired to slick my hair back with brill cream or grow long pork chop sideburns. That 50s phase of my childhood ended with Shanana, and yet there still exists in me a yearning for a better place, a better time, like it does in many of us, I imagine. Maybe the yearning is for a time in the 80s when wrestling music wasn't just there to enter the ring to. Maybe the yearnings for a time when certain wrestling superstars could somehow embody the music we listen to and remind us of a more innocent time that probably only exists in our mind. My memories have left the building, and you've been listening to Wrestling with Heels On. Join us next time as we take another stroll down Villainy Lane, only on the Sports History Network. Uh This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice 
as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.